0: Chapter 1 of Queen Victoria This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter 1 Queen Victoria Chapter 1 Antecedents 1 On November 6th, 1817, died the Princess Charlotte, only child of the Prince Regent and heir to the Crown of England. Her short life had hardly been a happy one. By nature impulsive, capricious and vehement, she had always longed for liberty, and she had never possessed it. She had been brought up among violent family quarrels, had been early separated from her disreputable and eccentric mother, and handed over to the care of her disreputable and selfish father. When she was seventeen, he decided to marry her off to the Prince of Orange. She at first acquiesced, but, suddenly falling in love with Prince Augustus of Prussia, she determined to break off the engagement. This was not her first love affair. "'for she had previously carried on "'a clandestine correspondence with a Captain Hess. "'Prince Augustus was already married, "'morganatically, but she did not know it, "'and he did not tell her. "'While she was spinning out the negotiations "'with the Prince of Orange, "'the Allied sovereign, it was June 1814, "'arrived in London to celebrate their victory. "'Among them, in the suite of the Emperor of Russia, was the young and handsome Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. He made several attempts to attract the notice of the princess, but she, with her heart elsewhere, paid very little attention. Next month, the prince-regent, discovering that his daughter was having secret meetings with Prince Augustus, suddenly appeared upon the scene, and, after dismissing her household, sentenced her to a strict seclusion in Windsor Park god almighty grant me patience she exclaimed falling on her knees in an agony of agitation then she jumped up ran down the back stairs and out into the street hailed a passing cab and drove to her mother's house in bayswater she was discovered pursued and at length yielding to the persuasions of her uncles the dukes of york and sussex of brougham and of the bishop of salisbury she returned to carlton house at two o'clock in the morning she was immured at windsor but no more was heard of the prince of orange prince augustus too disappeared the way was at last open to prince leopold of saxe-coburg This prince was clever enough to get round the regent, to impress the ministers, and to make friends with another of the princess's uncles, the Duke of Kent. Through the duke he was able to communicate privately with the princess, who now declared that he was necessary to her happiness. When, after Waterloo, he was in Paris, the duke's aide-de-camp carried letters backwards and forwards across the channel. In January 1816 he was invited to England, and in May the marriage took place. The character of Prince Leopold contrasted strangely with that of his wife. The younger son of a German princeling, he was at this time twenty-six years of age. He had served with distinction in the war against Napoleon. He had shown considerable diplomatic skill at the Congress of Vienna, and he was now to try his hand at the task of taming a tumultuous princess cold and formal in manner, collected in speech, careful in action, he soon dominated the wild, impetuous, generous creature by his side. There was much in her, he found, of which he could not approve. She quizzed, she stamped, she roared with laughter, she had very little of that self-command which is especially required of princes. Her manners were abominable." Of the latter, he was a good judge, having moved, as he himself explained to his niece many years later, in the best society of Europe, being, in fact, what is called in French, de la fleur des pois. There was continual friction, but every scene ended in the same way. Standing before him like a rebellious boy in petticoats, her body pushed forward, her hands behind her back with flaming cheeks and sparkling eyes, she would declare at last that she was ready to do whatever he wanted. "'If you wish it, I will do it,' she would say. "'I want nothing for myself.' He invariably answered. When I press something on you, it is from a conviction that it is for your interest and for your good. Among the members of the household at Claremont, near Escher, where the royal pair were established, was a young German physician, Christian Friedrich Stockmar. He was the son of a minor magistrate in Coburg and, after taking part as a medical officer in the war, he had settled down as a doctor in his native town. Here he had met Prince Leopold, who had been struck by his ability, and, on his marriage, brought him to England as his personal physician. A curious fate awaited this young man. Many were the gifts which the future held in store for him, many and various—influence, power, mystery, unhappiness, a broken heart. At Clermont his position was a very humble one, but the princess took a fancy to him, called him stocky, and romped with him along the corridors. Dyspeptic by constitution, melancholic by temperament, he could yet be lively on occasion, and was known as a wit in Coburg. He was virtuous, too, and served the royal menage with approbation, "'My master,' he wrote in his diary, "'is the best of all husbands in all the five-quarters of the globe, and his wife bears him an amount of love, the greatness of which can only be compared with the English national debt.'" Before long he gave proof of another quality, a quality which was to color the whole of his life-cautious sagacity. WHEN IN THE SPRING OF 1817 IT WAS KNOWN THAT THE PRINCESS WAS EXPECTING A CHILD, THE POST OF ONE OF HER PHYSICIANS IN ORDINARY WAS OFFERED TO HIM, AND HE HAD THE GOOD SENSE TO REFUSE IT. HE PERCEIVED THAT HIS COLLEAGUES WOULD BE JEALOUS OF HIM, THAT HIS ADVICE WOULD PROBABLY NOT BE TAKEN, BUT THAT IF ANYTHING WERE TO GO WRONG, IT WOULD BE CERTAINLY THE FOREIGN DOCTOR WHO WOULD BE BLAMED. Very soon, indeed, he came to the opinion that the low diet and constant bleedings to which the unfortunate princess was subjected were an error. He drew the prince aside, and begged him to communicate this opinion to the English doctors, but it was useless. The fashionable lowering treatment was continued for months. On November 5th, at nine o'clock in the evening, After a labor of over fifty hours, the princess was delivered of a dead boy. At midnight, her exhausted strength gave way. When at last Stockmar consented to see her, he went in and found her obviously dying, while the doctors were plying her with wine. She seized his hand and pressed it. They have made me tipsy, she said. After a little he left her. AND WAS ALREADY IN THE NEXT ROOM WHEN HE HEARD HER CALL OUT IN HER LOUD VOICE, STOCKY! STOCKY! AS HE RAN BACK, THE DEATH RATTLE WAS IN HER THROAT. SHE TOSSED HERSELF VIOLENTLY FROM SIDE TO SIDE, THEN SUDDENLY DREW UP HER LEGS, AND IT WAS OVER. THE PRINCE, AFTER HOURS OF WATCHING, HAD LEFT THE ROOM FOR A FEW MOMENTS' REST, AND STOCKMAR HAD NOW TO TELL HIM THAT HIS WIFE WAS DEAD. At first he could not be made to realize what had happened. On their way to her room he sank down on a chair while Stockmar knelt beside him. It was all a dream. It was impossible. At last, by the bed, he too knelt down and kissed the cold hands. Then, rising and exclaiming, Now I am quite desolate. Promise me never to leave me he threw himself into Stockmar's arms. 2. The tragedy at Claremont was of a most upsetting kind. The royal kaleidoscope had suddenly shifted, and nobody could tell how the new pattern would arrange itself. The succession to the throne, which had seemed so satisfactorily settled, now became a matter of urgent doubt george the third was still living an aged lunatic at windsor completely impervious to the impressions of the outer world of his seven sons the youngest was of more than middle age and none had legitimate offspring the outlook therefore was ambiguous it seemed highly improbable that the prince regent who had lately been obliged to abandon his stays and presented a preposterous figure of debauched obesity could ever again, even on the supposition that he divorced his wife and remarried, become the father of a family. Besides the Duke of Kent, who must be noticed separately, the other brothers, in order of seniority, were the Dukes of York, Clarence, Cumberland, Sussex, and Cambridge. Their situations and prospects require a brief description. The Duke of York, whose escapades in times past with Mrs. Clark and the army had brought him into trouble, now divided his life between London and a large, extravagantly ordered and extremely uncomfortable country-house where he occupied himself with racing, whist, and improper stories. He was remarkable among the princes for one reason. He was the only one of them, so we are informed by a highly competent observer, who had the feelings of a gentleman. He had been long married to the Princess Royal of Prussia, a lady who rarely went to bed and was perpetually surrounded by vast numbers of dogs, parrots, and monkeys. They had no children. The Duke of Clarence had lived for many years in complete obscurity with Mrs. Jordan, the actress, in Bushy Park. By her he had had a large family of sons and daughters, and had appeared, in effect, to be married to her. "'when he suddenly separated from her "'and offered to marry Miss Wycombe, "'a crazy woman of large fortune, "'who, however, would have nothing to say to him. "'Shortly afterwards, "'Mrs. Jordan died in distressed circumstances in Paris. "'The Duke of Cumberland "'was probably the most unpopular man in England. "'Hideously ugly, with a distorted eye, "'he was bad-tempered and vindictive in private, a violent reactionary in politics, and was subsequently suspected of murdering his valet and having carried on an amorous intrigue of an extremely scandalous kind. He had lately married a German princess, but there were as yet no children by the marriage. The Duke of Sussex had mildly literary tastes and collected books. He had married Lady Augusta Murray, by whom he had two children, but the marriage under the Royal Marriages Act was declared void. On Lady Augusta's death, he married Lady Cecilia Buggin. She changed her name to Underwood, but this marriage was also void. Of the Duke of Cambridge, the youngest of the brothers not very much was known. He lived in Hanover, wore a blonde wig, chattered and fidgeted a great deal, and was unmarried. Besides his seven sons, George Third had five surviving daughters. Of these, two, the Queen of Württemberg and the Duchess of Gloucester, were married and childless. The three unmarried princesses, Augusta, Elizabeth, and Sophia, were all over forty. 3. The fourth son of George Third was Edward, Duke of Kent, He was now fifty years of age, a tall, stout, vigorous man, highly coloured, with bushy eyebrows, a bald top to his head, and what hair he had, carefully dyed a glossy black. His dress was extremely neat, and in his whole appearance there was a rigidity which did not belie his character. He had spent his early life in the army, at Gibraltar in Canada in the West Indies, and under the influence of military training had become at first a disciplinarian and at last a martinet in 1802 having been sent to gibraltar to restore order in a mutinous garrison he was recalled for undue severity and his active career had come to an end since then he had spent his life regulating his domestic arrangements with great exactitude busying himself with the affairs of his numerous dependents designing clocks and struggling to restore order to his finances. For, in spite of his being, as someone said who knew him well, reglais comme du papier à musique», and in spite of an income of £24,000 a year, he was hopelessly in debt. He had quarrelled with most of his brothers, particularly with the Prince-Regent, and it was only natural that he should have joined the political opposition and become a pillar of the Whigs. What his political opinions may actually have been is open to doubt. It has often been asserted that he was a liberal, or even a radical, and, if we are to believe Robert Owen, he was a necessitarian socialist. His relations with Owen, the shrewd, gullible, high-minded, wrong-headed, illustrious, and preposterous father of socialism and cooperation, were curious and characteristic. He talked of visiting the mills at New Lanark, He did, in fact, preside at one of Owen's public meetings. He corresponded with him on confidential terms, and he even, so Owen assures us, returned after his death from the sphere of spirits to give encouragement to the Owenites on earth. "'In in an especial manner,' says Owen, "'I have to name the very anxious feelings of the spirit of His Royal Highness the late Duke of Kent,' who early informed me that there were no titles in the spiritual spheres into which he had entered, to benefit not a class, a sect, a party, or any particular country, but the whole of the human race through futurity. His whole spirit proceeding with me has been most beautiful, Owen adds, making his own appointments, and never in one instance has this spirit not been punctual to the minute he had named but Owen was of a sanguine temperament. He also numbered among his proselytes President Jefferson, Prince Metternich, and Napoleon, so that some uncertainty must still linger over the Duke of Kent's views. But there is no uncertainty about another circumstance. His Royal Highness borrowed from Robert Owen on various occasions various sums of money which were never repaid, and amounted in all to several hundred pounds. After the death of the Princess Charlotte, it was clearly important, for more than one reason, that the Duke of Kent should marry. From the point of view of the nation, the lack of heirs in the reigning family seemed to make the step almost obligatory. It was also likely to be highly expedient from the point of view of the Duke. To marry as a public duty, for the sake of the royal succession, would surely deserve some recognition from a grateful country. When the Duke of York had married, he had received a settlement of twenty-five thousand pounds a year. Why should not the Duke of Kent look forward to an equal sum? But the situation was not quite simple. There was the Duke of Clarence to be considered. He was the elder brother, and if he married, would clearly have the prior claim. On the other hand, if the Duke of Kent married, it was important to remember that he would be making a serious sacrifice. A lady was involved. The Duke, reflecting upon all these matters with careful attention, happened about a month after his niece's death to visit Brussels, and learnt that Mr. Creevey was staying in the town. Mr. Creevey was a close friend of the leading Whigs and an inveterate gossip and it occurred to the Duke that there could be no better channel through which to communicate his views upon the situation to political circles at home. Apparently it did not occur to him that Mr. Creevey was malicious, and might keep a diary. He therefore sent for him on some trivial pretext, and a remarkable conversation ensued after referring to the death of the princess to the improbability of the regent seeking a divorce to the childlessness of the duke of york and to the possibility of the duke of clarence marrying the duke adverted to his own position should the duke of clarence not marry he said the next prince in succession is myself and though i trust i shall be at all times ready to obey any call my country may make upon me "'God only knows the sacrifice it will be to make "'whenever I shall think it my duty to become a married man. "'It is now seven-and-twenty years "'that Madame Saint-Laurent and I have lived together. "'We are of the same age and have been in all climates "'and in all difficulties together, "'and you may well imagine, Mr. Creevey, "'the pang it will occasion me to part with her. "'I put it to your own feelings.' "'in the event of any separation "'between you and Mrs. Creevy. "'As for Madame St. Laurent herself, "'I protest I don't know "'what is to become of her "'if a marriage is to be forced upon me. "'Her feelings are already "'so agitated upon the subject.' "'The Duke went on to describe "'how one morning, a day or two "'after the Princess Charlotte's death, "'a paragraph had appeared "'in the Morning Chronicle "'alluding to the possibility "'of his marriage.' he had received the newspaper at breakfast together with his letters, and, quote, I did as is my constant practice, I threw the newspaper across the table to Madame Saint-Laurent and began to open and read my letters. I had not done so but a very short time, when my attention was called to an extraordinary noise and a strong convulsive movement in Madame Saint-Laurent's throat. For a short time I entertained serious apprehensions for her safety, and when upon her recovery I inquired into the occasion of this attack, she pointed to the article in the Morning Chronicle." The Duke then returned to the subject of the Duke of Clarence. "'My brother the Duke of Clarence is the elder brother, and has certainly the right to marry if he chooses, and I would not interfere with him on any account.' if he wishes to be king to be married and have children poor man god help him let him do so for myself i am a man of no ambition and wish only to remain as i am easter you know falls very early this year the twenty second of march if the duke of clarence does not take any step before that time I must find some pretext to reconcile Madame Saint-Laurent to my going to England for a short time, when once there it will be easy for me to consult with my friends as to the proper steps to be taken. Should the Duke of Clarence do nothing before that time as to marrying, it will become my duty, no doubt, to take some measures upon the subject myself. Two names, the Duke said, had been mentioned in this connection. "'those of the Princess of Baden "'and the Princess of Saxe-Coburg. "'The latter, he thought, "'would perhaps be the better of the two, "'from the circumstance of Prince Leopold "'being so popular with the nation. "'But before any other steps were taken, "'he hoped and expected to see justice done "'to Madame Saint-Laurent. "'She is, he explained, a very good family, "'and has never been an actress, "'and I am the first and only person "'who ever lived with her.' Her disinterestedness, too, has been equal to her fidelity. When she first came to me it was upon one hundred pounds a year. That sum was afterwards raised to four hundred pounds and finally to a thousand pounds. But when my debts made it necessary for me to sacrifice a great part of my income, Madame Saint-Laurent insisted upon again returning to her income of four hundred pounds a year. "'If Madame St. Laurent is to return to live amongst her friends, it must be in such a state of independence as to command their respect. I shall not require very much, but a certain number of servants and a carriage are essentials.' As to his own settlement, the Duke observed that he would expect the Duke of York's marriage to be considered the precedent.' that, he said, was a marriage for the succession, and twenty-five thousand pounds for income was settled in addition to all his other income purely on that account. I shall be contented with the same arrangement, without making any demands grounded on the difference of the value of money in 1792 and at present. As for the payment of my debts, the Duke concluded, I don't call them great. The nation, on the contrary, is greatly my debtor. Here a clock struck, and seemed to remind the Duke that he had an appointment. He rose, and Mr. Creevey left him. Who could keep such a communication secret? Certainly not Mr. Creevey. He hurried off to tell the Duke of Wellington, who was very much amused, and he wrote a long account of it to Lord Sefton, who received the letter, very apropos, unquote, while a surgeon was sounding his bladder to ascertain whether he had a stone. "'I never saw a fellow more astonished than he was,' wrote Lord Sefton in his reply, at seeing me laugh as soon as the operation was over. "'Nothing could be more first-rate than the royal Edward's ingenuousness. "'One does not know which to admire most. "'The delicacy of his attachment to Madame Saint-Laurent, the refinement of his sentiments toward the Duke of Clarence, or his own perfect disinterestedness in pecuniary matters." As it turned out, both the brothers decided to marry. The Duke of Kent, selecting the Princess of Saxe-Coburg in preference to the Princess of Baden, was united to her on May twenty ninth, eighteen eighteen. On June eleventh, The Duke of Clarence followed suit with the daughter of the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen, but they were disappointed in their financial expectations, for though the government brought forward proposals to increase their allowances, together with that of the Duke of Cumberland, the motions were defeated in the House of Commons. At this, the Duke of Wellington was not surprised. "'By God,' he said, "'there is a great deal to be said about that. They are the damnedest millstones about the neck of any government that can be imagined. They have insulted, personally insulted, two-thirds of the gentlemen of England, and how can it be wondered at that they take their revenge upon them in the House of Commons? It is their only opportunity, and I think, by God, they are quite right to use it. Eventually, however, Parliament increased the Duke of Kent's annuity by six thousand pounds. The subsequent history of Madame Saint-Laurent has not transpired. 4. The new Duchess of Kent, Victoria Mary Louisa, was a daughter of Francis, Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Salfeld, and a sister of Prince Leopold. The family was an ancient one, being a branch of the great House of Vettin, which since the 11th century had ruled over the March of Meissen on the Elbe. In the 15th century, the whole possessions of the house had been divided between the Albertine and Ernestine branches. From the former descended the electors and kings of Saxony. The latter, ruling over Thuringia, became further subdivided into five branches, of which the Duchy of Saxe-Coburg was one this principality was very small containing about sixty thousand inhabitants but it enjoyed independent and sovereign rights during the disturbed years which followed the french revolution its affairs became terribly involved the duke was extravagant and kept open house for the swarms of refugees who fled eastward over germany as the french power advanced among these was the prince of leiningen an elderly beau whose domains on the Mosul had been seized by the French, but who was granted in compensation the territory of Amorbach in lower Franconia. In 1803, he married the Princess Victoria, at that time seventeen years of age. Three years later Duke Francis died, a ruined man. The Napoleonic harrow passed over Saxe-Coburg, the duchy was seized by the French, and the ducal family were reduced to beggary, almost to starvation. At the same time, the little principality of Amorbach was devastated by the French, Russian, and Austrian armies marching and counter-marching across it. For years there was hardly a cow in the country, nor enough grass to feed a flock of geese. Such was the desperate plight of the family which a generation later was to have gained a foothold in half the reigning houses of Europe. The Napoleonic Harrow had indeed done its work, the seed was planted, and the crop would have surprised Napoleon. Prince Leopold, thrown upon his own resources at fifteen, made a career for himself and married the heiress of England. The princess of Leiningen, struggling at Amorbach with poverty, military requisitions and a futile husband, "'developed an independence of character "'and a tenacity of purpose "'which were to prove useful "'in very different circumstances. "'In 1814, her husband died, "'leaving her with two children "'and the Regency of the Principality. "'After her brother's marriage "'with the Princess Charlotte, "'it was proposed that she should marry "'the Duke of Kent. "'But she declined on the ground "'that the guardianship of her children and the management of her domains made other ties undesirable the princess charlotte's death however altered the case and when the duke of kent renewed his offer she accepted it she was thirty-two years old short stout with brown eyes and hair and rosy cheeks cheerful and voluble and gorgeously attired in rustling silks and bright velvets She was certainly fortunate in her contented disposition, for she was fated all through her life to have much to put up with. Her second marriage, with its dubious prospects, seemed at first to be chiefly a source of difficulties and discomforts. The Duke, declaring that he was still too poor to live in England, moved about with uneasy precision through Belgium and Germany, attending parades and inspecting barracks in a neat military cap. "'while the English notabilities looked askance, "'and the Duke of Wellington dubbed him the Corporal. "'God damn!' he exclaimed to Mr. "Do you know what his sisters call him. "'By God, they call him Joseph Surface!' "'At Valenciennes, where there was a review and a great dinner, "'the Duchess arrived with an old and ugly lady-in-waiting, "'and the Duke of Wellington found himself in a difficulty.' Who the devil is to take out the maid of honour? he kept asking, but at last he thought of a solution. "'Damn, Fremantle, find out the mayor and let him do it. So the mayor of Valenciennes was brought up for the purpose, and, so we learned from Mr. Creevy, a capital figure he was. A few days later, at Brussels, Mr. Creevy himself had an unfortunate experience. A military school was to be inspected. Before breakfast, the company assembled, everything was highly satisfactory, but the Duke of Kent continued for so long examining every detail and asking meticulous question after meticulous question that Mr. Creevy at last could bear it no longer and whispered to his neighbour that he was damned hungry. The Duke of Wellington heard him and was delighted. I recommend you, he said. "'Whenever you start with the royal family in a morning, "'and particularly with the corporal, "'always to breakfast first. "'He and his staff, it turned out, "'had taken that precaution, "'and the great man amused himself "'while the stream of royal inquiries poured on "'by pointing at Mr. Creevy from time to time "'with the remark, "'Voilà le monsieur qui n'a pas jeunes," "'Settled down at last at Ammerbach, the time hung heavily on the duke's hands. The establishment was small, the country was impoverished, even clockmaking grew tedious at last. He brooded, for in spite of his piety the duke was not without a vein of superstition, over the prophecy of a gipsy at Gibraltar who told him that he was to have many losses and crosses, that he was to die in happiness, and that his only child was to be a great queen. Before long it became clear that a child was to be expected. The duke decided that it should be born in England. Funds were lacking for the journey, but his determination was not to be set aside. Come what might, he declared, his child must be English-born. A carriage was hired, and the duke himself mounted the box. Inside were the Duchess, her daughter Fedora, a girl of 14, with maids, nurses, lapdogs, and canaries. Off they drove, through Germany, through France, bad roads, cheap inns were nothing to the rigorous duke and the equable, abundant Duchess. The channel was crossed. London was reached in safety. The authorities provided a set of rooms in Kensington Palace, and there... On May 24, 1819, a female infant was born. End of chapter 1